0: This is um the second attempt this is actually now the third attempt to interview large <laughs> class <laughs> for Scott Swayhe and um we originally did this at uh, the launch of his new novel Bring Me the Head of Ryan Giggs, but there were gremlins in the machine that night, so we've had to redo it but which is much better because we can put everything into context and take our time a little bit and not fight over um The noise of screaming wains as what was going on in Mono.
1: It's almost like this was intended.
0: Yes, I think it probably was, For you believe in such things. So, um, Roger Glass, new novel, Bring Me the Head of Ryan Giggs. Your fifth book, I think I'm correct in saying, previous ones being No Fireworks, Hope for Newborns, your Alastair Gray biography, Secretary's biography, Doogie's War, which I remember to bring this time, which is another reason this is a better one. And uh, I now bring me the head of Ryan Giggs. Simple question to begin with. No, first of all, thanks for coming along. It's a pleasure. Always good to see you. Um, How do you think the writing has changed going from No Fireworks through to the, the new book?
1: The main difference is that I'm more confident and I've got a stronger sense of what I think fiction is for and the kind of writing that I want to do. I think it's understandable that whenever any writer starts out you're almost crippled by the weight of everything else that's come before and you don't entirely know where you're going to fit into that mm-hmm. and um you can be um what's the best way of putting it i think it's not quite being intimidated but it's feeling like there's a proper way to write and yeah. that you should be reaching for that proper way to write um and so early on i was quite focused on you know, the tiny little intricacies of of rhythms of sentences and everything moved very, very slowly, but it felt like it was trying to reach a certain um, kind of literature that I might hope to be taken seriously. (laughs) Having completely abandoned that hope now, the work has changed. And the more that I've gone on, the more I've realised that I want to write about the contemporary world and use the language of that world and the pace of that world and the tone Mm -hmm. of that world. And the more that I've got closer to feeling okay about that, I think the more the writing style has evolved and maybe that's um, the main thing that's different about this book.
0: You think when you start out, you're almost in competition with your bookshelves, you think, well, you know, these are the people I have to fit in to some kind of tradition where actually there's, you know, you would, what kind of tradition is there? You just have to find out what you want to write about and then hopefully people will take it from there.
1: Yeah, you're in competition with your bookshelves at the start and it's overwhelming because Mm -hmm. there's so much and there's so many different traditions and you can't possibly know about all of it so you just feel kind of dumb and you start off with something you feel is manageable and as i've gone on i've experimented a lot more the grey book was a huge part of that yeah and that was a very unorthodox biography that i don't think i could have attempted five years beforehand Mm -hmm. because i didn't know that i had the tools for it and i didn't feel like i had permission yeah it's about giving yourself permission. I think there's more that a lot more So that we permission
0: can, from yourself, rather than any permission from Alistair or anything.
1: No, it's permission from yourself.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting, and I think No Fireworks is is uh, I really love it. But I've known you for a long time, and when I first read it, I went, "This doesn't feel like the kind of book Roger would write." It felt mm. like I'm much older. Uh, writer yeah. had written it and not just because the character's um are, are an older character. Um whereas um particularly bring me the head of Iran Giggs, yeah went, yeah, this sounds like the Roger I know.
1: Yeah, I'm getting younger as I got older. Yeah, it's
0: a, it yeah. it is, it is, it's that kind of uh, what was that that film? I know it doesn't matter. The film where uh, Brad Pitt becomes younger as the thing goes on. Yeah. Um so you think you think that you were writing not just for uh an idea of what what it was, but you had the idea of how how you should be writing.
1: Yeah, I, and there are several key things that happen throughout the process in order to make that happen. First of all, it's just experience. Yeah, you read more, you obviously perform your work more, and you, you get closer to realizing the kind of writer that you want to be. Mm-hmm. And I realised that actually I was moving things pretty slowly in my work earlier on. I loved doing that early on, but I wanted to. You want to change change and evolve and grow and all these things and um, and I wanted to have more pace in what I did mm-hmm. and I wanted it to be able to write in the way that I speak and the way that I yeah. think yeah. and to be able to write about the world that I came from as well and particularly that was important for this book about United you have mm-hmm. to be able to use the language of that world and a huge influence on this book was The Damned United by mm-hmm. David Peace huge fan of David Peace anyway but what I loved about that book was it had something. It showed something about 1970s England, that part of England, yeah. and also the way that men communicated in that world. Mm-hmm. But it had to be done in a language that reflected that world. It couldn't be done as if it was written in a smoking chair, uh, smoking, smoking chair, <laughs> <laughs> in a smoking jacket, in an armchair, two hundred years after the event. Yeah. You know, I wanted to have a, an urgency. That's it. It's an urgency about mm-hmm. the kind of writing that you do, yeah. and I wanted it to reflect the kind of world that I wanted to write about, and this book is supposed to be like a premiership version uh, an up-to-date yeah. premiership version of The Damned United um, it just so happens to be about Man United instead of mm-hmm. Leeds United
0: and the, the other similarity is you're dealing with um, some real people and places um, other, other uh, people have Asked if that was a big deal or a problem I don't quite understand why but just say a little bit about you know having to write with real
1: people yeah sure um, well the main difference between The Damned United and mine is that um, David Peace got himself into a little bit of trouble yeah, and got like himself sued because it was perceived that he was trying to portray real events within a fictionalised context which was a little bit too subtle for many readers mm-hmm. like, if you are the captain of that Leeds United team and you were in that room having that conversation with Brian Clough and the real names are used and those mm-hmm. scenes are recreated and they're not what you remember then you kind of got a fair argument to be able to say well hold on you're yeah. you're presenting that to people as if it's a real yeah. thing yeah. now piece is always written this is a fiction based upon a fact yeah. but it's a it's a subtlety that people who are interested in contemporary fiction might be interested in it, Yeah. Uh, who, who, who might forgive, mm-hmm. understand, and think is a relevant way to go about um, fictionalising the world around us. But it was actually very difficult for a lot of people that were alive and still around. Yeah. Now, the, the difference between what Peace did and what I've done is that at no stage am I trying to say, these are events that really happened. Mm-hmm. My protagonist is not real. Yeah. All of my um, real Celebrity United figures are used and seen through the mind of this character who's miles away from them, is about fandom. It's about the the myths that we tell ourselves about what each of these um, each of these celebrities are. You know, it's about us turning them into gods and what yeah. um, what it happens in the imaginations of ordinary people, rather than saying, "Well, here was an event that happened in 1992 mm-hmm. on a training pitch, and I want you to take it seriously, but within a fictionalized yeah. context." So. We, we had a bit of a joke at the launch I don't know if this will be included on the podcast or not but had a bit of a joke at the launch about reading out the disclaimer at the front mm-hmm. of the book and which is a little bit convoluted um but it does try and show that this is a fantasy <laughs> this and was I think a disclaimer it, that lawyers had kind yeah, of got yeah their... <laughs> yeah yeah but I think that's what it comes down to is you know is it is it could it be taken seriously mm-hmm. and it's funny that it, people are so uptight about this in fiction in a way they're just not in other forms you know, there's very little controversy when, say, in the film The Queen came out or The yeah. Iron Lady or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, nobody says, well, hold on, you can't fictionalise those people yeah. or make the up Queen words to put them out. I think, absolutely, yeah. 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 Um, and The Queen's still the Queen. Yeah. But people can get their heads around the fact that it can be fictionalised. Mm-hmm. It can have some root in meaning, but also it's not supposed to be taken as literal history. That's right. Whereas in contemporary fiction, I think we're very uptight about it still, in a way that historical fiction has got over years and years ago. Mm hmm. Um, I think that in order for the novel to be able to remain relevant in our times we have to be able to find ways to engage with our contemporary world in a way that's meaningful yeah. to people that live in it mm-hmm. and these guys are the myths and the legends of our time and I just think um, that means that we should have the freedom to be able to use them as we want as long as we're not seriously saying anything negative or libelous about them that isn't true Yeah. Like the where Giggs fits in in this book is He's completely deified. Mm -hmm. At no point does Mikey, the main character, say um, really anything that. Yeah, he doesn't
0: try to say he's got feet of clay and catch him out. And uh, either do you? It's not like saying, "Well, you know, here's this god, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick it to him." There's nothing like that at all. It's a device used to show. But uh, it just so
1: happens, though, that
0: that he has got feet of clay.
1: (laughs) um, It it just so happens that well. You don't write a book like that without thinking that maybe if you t- try to turn men into gods, it'll turn out that they're actually men after all. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not Nostradamus, right? Yeah. I, I wrote the book 95% before the scandal broke, but um, I'm not saying that I predicted anything at all, but you, you don't have to be a genius to work out that perhaps this whiter than white illusion was an illusion. Yeah, And all right, it was more dramatic. The downfall was much more dramatic than many people could have predicted, yeah. but... The weight of that scandal brings a different feel to the whole of the book. Now, the context is totally different, so I don't need to say, "Oh, look, look at this, look at this lie," Mm -hmm. because people people know they know. Yeah, yeah. And that's partly what's exciting about writing this kind of novel. Um, If you're dealing in historical events where everybody is safely dead, then it's a different business. I mean, even if you take um, Andrew Hagen's. Novel about Marilyn Monroe, which I love. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, is a good example of how fiction can remain relevant and do something that other forms can't do. You know, that everything from the perspective of the dog yeah, over right. those last two years, because the dog was the only person that saw everything. That's something only fiction can do. That's yeah. fantastic. But he is also dealing with mostly with characters that are, are dead and are not going yeah. to interfere. Um, those events aren't going to change now. Whereas, from the, dis- the difference between the end of my first edit of this book. And it being published, everything changed. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. It makes you feel like you're doing something that's happening.
0: It's the reason why I when I like reading contemporary fiction and why I uh, academically looked at um, contemporary stuff. People always used to say to me, oh, I want to deal with dead writers because, one, they're not going to write anything new. And they can't come back and do that whole Marshall McLuhan thing, going, "You don't know anything about my work," you know. Yeah. Yeah. Where, but actually, that's what makes it exciting for me because you can engage with them, and things will change. And uh, it shows you that uh, nobody's saying that what it's fiction. There's a reason it's called fiction. It's on the shelves in fiction. It, it, you know, it's 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 looking at things which give wider uh, concerns uh, context. Mm. And that can only happen if you're writing in the here and the now and about a place in time. Um talking about uh, men as gods, do you feel that the writing of the Alistair Gray book, um how did how did that change the style that you were saying you, you gave yourself um permission to write that? But how how did that change your fiction writing afterwards? Because okay. that is something yeah. you're writing about who's a real uh, Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, and that's a completely different sense of responsibility. Um I recommend that every fiction writer write a biography, it will almost certainly drive you mental, obsessing over one person for that amount of time and in that much detail. But actually as a character study it's a really interesting thing to do and it's a great, great learning experience. So in writing that book, the main thing that I learned early on was that in order to be able to make it work for people who were interested in Alistair, it had to be written in the spirit and the style of Alistair. So that gave certain demands. It meant that it was never going to be a... He was born in 1934 in Ridry, and then he grew up, and then he wrote this, and then he painted that, and now here he is. It had to be done in a way that mirrored what he's like. And so it had to be cut up. It had to be in places. It had to have his personality in it. Mm And it couldn't have been done in this, you know, there are loads of things written about Alistair Gray, really distant academic writing that's, you know, 500 words a sentence and 15,000 clauses and prides itself on having absolutely none of the flavour of what Gray's work is all about. Um, And as these high horse biographies, I could never get into them. And also because I had a personal relationship there, I didn't want to do that, I had to get in and get messy mm-hmm. with it and ad- admit my own weaknesses and my own interests and make all those declarations and then try and do something that would show people what I always said in interviews then was I wanted to show people in Scotland in a hundred years what it was like to be in with Alistair Grey mm-hmm. so that meant diary entries about doing the Christmas card list with him visiting him in the hospital driving him to a friend's funeral watching him paint listening to him sing um, or, and just trying to say something interesting about those things yeah. happening that was then melded with the more traditional biography element and with a lot of different assessments of the work and all that type of thing. Okay, so how did that influence what came next? Well, because it was a much more experimental way of going about things and because it was received well, yep. um, that then gave me the confidence to think, all right, well, maybe the next book that I do, that should also be done in the spirit of the kind of world that I'm trying to show. Yeah. So it made direct sense to me. Now, I don't know whether anybody's going to spot it. They probably won't. But it gave me permission to be able to approach the football world in football language yeah. rather than in quite a distant third person, one that was maybe making a judgment on that world in yeah. some way. So it, that meant doing spoof media sections. It meant doing like, fake commentaries. It meant you know following uh, Mikey's career right from the first kick of the ball in the back garden with his dad right up to his final injury. And it you know, meant doing things in the style of the teletext. Yeah. Uh, At yeah, the yeah. top of the pitch and, and, and using, yeah, and yeah, and yeah, using yeah. Uh, football blogs and the whole Gigsy Watch section. Yeah. Is that real?
0: The Gigsy Watch sections? Are they uh, taken from real uh, websites?
1: Allthingsgigs.com is not a real website. Okay, right. Although I, I've encouraged somebody to set it up. <laughs> no, I did. Uh, no, I thought I could no, easily I, be. They, that was something that came in quite late once I'd done the worst ever United 11 section. And, um, and then there was all that discussion underneath yeah. from all these cha- online characters. I thought, all oh, right, well, I'll take each of those guys and they can comment on each individual game. And many of these fictional bloggers yeah. had had their posts deleted for racism or yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whatever, <laughs> just you know absolute filth. Um, but it was a lot more fun to do it in that way. Yeah. And I don't think that, before I'd done the Alistair Grey book, or in, in fact, um, Doogie's War, which was also a hybrid book, part graphic novel, part photographs, part essays, yeah. all that, part research, all of that, if I hadn't done those things beforehand, I would never have approached a novel by writing it in three different... Um, three different ways... Four different ways. Yeah. And then melding them all together at the end.
0: What... Having read all your books, I think the first two... It's just what you've been talking about. You can you think, well, this is someone who's writing for how they think rain should be, and in a secretary's biography, it's as much about you as it is about Alistair. Yeah, yeah. And I know there is an honesty, and I kind of like, you know, I've got if I'm going to be honest about Alistair, I've got to be honest about myself, yeah. and I've got to say, I don't care if people read this and judge this or whatever. And that, and we'll talk about Doogie's War in a second, comes through. I think in a gigs because you think, well, yeah, I've got the stage now, I'm just going to write what I want to write. It seems like a freeing. The, mm. the, 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 the grey, and I know what a big book that was for you, it kind of has given you the freedom now to say, I can write how I want to write, and, you know, if it's if people like it, that's great. If they don't, there's nothing I can do yeah. about that.
1: It's, it's an amazingly freeing thing, and it does mean that, although I've only done a few readings for this book so far, and there have only been a few reviews, it's still really early days, um... I feel a lot closer to the material than mm-hmm. anything else I've ever done and um, that's a, kind of a strange feeling because if you live in Scotland and you've written a book about de Grey, chances are that's probably if you're going to be remembered for anything at all, by anybody that's probably going to be it and at the time I remember thinking oh well maybe that's the best thing I'll do, maybe that's mm. you know, more that than a fiction writer which is what I'd always always considered myself yeah, beforehand sure. but from the the early readings of this and I just have a different kind of confidence in it, and that is very much uh, thanks to what happened with the with what happened with the grey book. I think that comes right. across
0: in the the readings, and we've got we recorded the uh, the readings from from mono, and we're going to have some of them uh, after this chat. You, it's obvious that you 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 enjoy reading this stuff. There's a real kind of like yeah, I, I'm enjoying this, and that comes across in the readings, and it comes across in the people. I think they they they. they um, feed into that as well, without a doubt.
1: Hopefully, audiences respond. I'm not just that. talking I'm about thinking. the bad
0: language here. I'm not just finding No, no, we, no me, of, thrilling course, it, in, no, of uh, course it's filth. Uh, but, filth if, but no, no, a um, the, do the whole think, situation.
1: Um, I absolutely enjoy it. I'm not one of these writers that hates uh, the live stuff. I think it lives live in a different way, and that's not any less valuable. Um, you, know, you get this discussion in particularly the poetry scene, a lot about, you know, what's a page poem and what's a performance poem. And it's kind of said in a a, a derogatory way, almost like a performance poem is somehow less, Mm. you know, if you said that to Benjamin Zephaniah, I don't think he'd be particularly pleased with you. Absolutely. And I think things have moved on a lot more from that. And one of the things that's happened in the industry in the last few years as advances have collapsed and as big publishers who previously got by by throwing a lot of books at the wall and hoping, as they've had to change, writers have also had to change and take on more... Take on more responsibility, be more independent, you end up basically the only person that's interested in you and your career from the beginning to the end of it yeah. is you yeah. and um and i've really enjoyed that part of it, and it means that if i I'm, if i 'm obviously enjoying doing the readings and obviously get something out of it, and people have a good time i'm more likely to be asked back to the next thing anyway yeah like that thing we touched on briefly about um you know the uh, the spirit of the great book and just you know. Being honest and not worrying about what people think, and then just you know, then they're just seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. I genuinely believe that's your best chance of being taken seriously and surviving anyway, yeah. because you're not bullshitting anybody, yeah. but genuinely saying, "Here are here are my uh, here are my vested interests, mm-hmm. here are my own vulnerabilities, this is my perspective, and now let's go yep. and see what we you know, let's make a mess and see what we can work out." If you see the the latest Werner Herzog film, The Interview the Abyss, oh, yeah. first 15 minutes, Herzog says out loud to one of the guys on death row, um, I, uh, I don't have to like you, but, um, uh, or respect you, but I'm against capital as punishment, yeah. and so this is what I believe. And you think, wow, he's come out and said that really early. Yeah. He's just given his own perspective. But actually, it doesn't affect the film badly. Yeah. Know, we, we are capable of dealing with these complications as readers and as viewers. and Actually, I think that makes things a lot more interesting. And people warmed to the Grey Book because they could see that it wasn't bullshit. Yeah, I think you know? that's right. If I'd have said, oh, I know Alistair better than anybody yeah. else. Um, if I'd have lied and said that I was important in his life, which I'm clearly not. If I'd have made more of it, people would have spotted it, I think. And I would have been rumbled. And that's why I mostly yeah. got away with it. I think, I, I
0: think that's right. I think mean, people... One, as you know, there'll be people only too uh, keen to try and say, oh, this, you know, uh, so you're the Grace Secretary and you have this inside and, and you know, putting yourself on some kind of level. It's not like that at all. As soon as anyone actually engages with it, they see it. Um, in Doogie's War, now explain a little bit about Doogie's War. You said a little bit about it, but it's a graphic novel, but there's much, much more than that.
1: Uh, yeah, I was commissioned by uh, what's now Freight Books, but was Freight Design. Uh, run by Adrian Searle, he does Gutter. And Adrian had published my first story way back in 2004. Um, We didn't know each other at all then. And he'd read my work and he'd read Hope for Newborns, which is about three generations of an army family in Manchester. And he said that they had had a little bit of funding to do something about PTSD. He had some history in his own family and he could see that I was interested in the subject because I'd already written about it. And um, at the time I'd just finished the Alastair book and I couldn't face climbing another mountain Mm -hmm. and I wanted something different to do. And um, it just struck me as my idea of fun. (laughs) Um, And it was about three or four months researching, um, talking to Scottish soldiers who'd served in Iraq and Afghanistan and then just trying to find a suitable way of telling that story that was targeting both teenagers... Who might be considering going into the army, mm-hmm. and also veterans that maybe didn't read so much or were interested in, like, were finally starting to talk about some of the issues because for a lot of them they never had done. And so it was a short comic, about 40 or 50 pages, yeah. and then um, we managed to get some fantastic photographs from the battlefield from Sergeant Nick Collins. Yeah, and uh, Adrian wrote a brilliant essay about PTSD and his own, the experience in his own family. And we also linked it to this thing, Charlie's War. Which was the first? Um, it was the first comic in the in the. Well, it was the seventies, but it was the first one ever really to investigate mental health and the, the downsides of war. It wasn't just okay. Yeah. We've got some guns. Let's go and shoot, shoot some Nazis. <laughs> um and, um I was always more interested in the war after the war and the mental war. Yeah. So it was sort of quite a challenge to try and portray something that was happening inside somebody's head. Mm-hmm. So that was the challenge of the whole thing and. Um, and we made we made this hybrid I, I did it with uh Dave Turbitt an artist who now lives in London but came from the same set part of the south side that i of Glasgow that I live in mm-hmm. and we set it around those streets yeah, and we went
0: you actually the pubs and then yeah yeah places. we yeah
1: we went around those streets and we took loads of photographs mm-hmm. on dave's phone and and said, well where would he drink yeah uh where would he um you know where would he have his his visions um a lot of uh, a lot of uh, guys that suffer with PTSD talk about looking down the street and on one side of the street you see the real street and on the other side you see the battlefield or you see yeah. some kind of flashback and so those are the main challenges trying to find ways of portraying that uh, we used our extra colour anything in red yeah. anything in red was imagined um, and everything else was real yeah. um, and so yeah that was Diggy's Water
0: so that, um there's a scene in it where they're uh, on the uh, football terraces and and you know shooting out and he's he's out with his pals and we you talked about how football in bring me the head of Ryan Giggs and having spoken to you in one of our abandoned attempts at this interview <laughs> you were saying how uh, communication in the males in your family it was often like well how are United doing and this kind of thing and that comes across in Doogie's War it seems to me that Doogie cannot communicate what is going on in his head and this you know obviously. Um, takes the story where it goes uh, yeah so he, t- talk a little bit about that idea of, of your view of the commit. you know men talking to men well, and the lack short, of well in they don't do it I mean, yeah short,
1: yeah they yeah. don't do it very well most of them but it's understand you've got to have sympathy for everybody I think I was talking who was I talking to yesterday I have no idea what I do in my own life I was talking to somebody about uh, I was talking to um, another writer that I met at Cove Park where mm-hmm. I did a residency last year he's from London he'd come up to go back to Cove Park to do some more writing. And we were talking about trying to have sympathy for every one of your characters, no matter what they've done. Yeah, yeah, To try to understand that each of them has got their own reasons and their own tragedies. And so the first thing you've got to do is to understand that there are good reasons. If men struggle to communicate with each other, there are good reasons why. And a big part of that is the way that our society is constructed and what is allowed and what's seen as acceptable male Mm -hmm. behaviour. You know, there were guys that I interviewed that had served in the Falklands that hadn't spoken for 30 years yeah. about anything yeah. um, and were just starting to get their head around the idea that it was okay to be able to admit that that was a bit difficult. My, I, I have uh,
0: an uncle who's in his 80s who fought in the war and a couple of times my dad has tried to talk to him about what happened and he just shuts,
1: shuts down. Absolutely yeah. That's a really common story. And the more I've gone around with Diggy, it's been funny, actually. It kind of started out very quietly, and mm. people didn't quite get it. And then it's kind of grown and grown, and, and a little life of its own. It's been really satisfying. And and some of the events that I've I've done for it, I did one at a library in Dunfermline, mm-hmm. and a lot a lot of young guys who were just learning to read and had never had a book before. And I was you know trying to explain the idea behind the book. And once they all got started talking, nearly all of them, particularly in Fife, there's a huge amount yeah, of yeah, services yeah. families. Once they all got started talking, he was like, yeah, actually, that, my dad served and he's never said mm-hmm. anything about it. Uh, a lot of them are very common stories, but you, to return to the sympathy thing, you just have to realise that necessarily people don't have the language for it. Yeah. They've never been given the language for it and haven't often been given the tools to be able to survive once they're not on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. If, you train, if you train somebody to be a killing machine and then ask him to go around Tesco's and fill in some forms to get a doctor or a dentist Mm. don't be surprised when they can't do it yeah and um, that's what uh, Dougie says that at one stage in the story you know I felt like killing something and why not that's all I was trained to do yeah Um, and it's uh, it's a huge huge challenge I do think things are changing a little bit though and um, there have been massive efforts to be able to try and give people permission to say how they feel but it's a big battle for most of those
0: guys in, in a similar way, um, if you train someone to kick a ball from the age of nine uh, and then it, it, they get to the late teens and suddenly they're not allowed to do that anymore, they've no – and especially in this country it seems to me – and having no kind of back-up education. I know friends of mine who had the chance apparently to go on other things they could drop their education almost immediately from the mm. age of about 12 it wasn't, it wasn't mm. a big deal because they were going to go and be footballer yeah because we, maybe you're going to win the lottery well exactly I, I just read I was visiting my folks in their local newspaper there was a thing saying a boy of eight and a boy of nine have both been signed up by Rangers and you was like God, this, this just cannot be right no for starters how <laughs> can they afford them <laughs> <laughs> still be <getting>
1: game <laughs> absolutely you can only wonder what they're going to be getting paid <laughs>
0: Yeah, the in, sweeties
1: and the, in sweeties and the promise of things to come. Oh dear. Um But yeah. you know
0: it's it's a similar thing. You do if you don't equip people, um I think a great example at the moment is the is the wonder that is Mario Balotelli. He's probably mm. just been knowing football all his life and then people expect him to, you know, do things in a certain way. And just just not he's been he's been indulged yeah. to within an inch of his life.
1: Yeah, and so we shouldn't be surprised. And I think it says far more about our own societies, what we expect of these people, that we want to be superhuman in certain ways, mm-hmm. but we also want them to be the best part of our own, our own morality. Mm-hmm. You know? That's why... why, why, f- why f- sorry. Yeah, just... Why would we be surprised yeah. that Mario Balotelli is going to have the opportunity to sleep with half of the world and then discover that he's probably slept with most of them? <laughs> you know? you would or maybe, maybe you would I don't know my point, my point yeah. being that we shouldn't project our morality no, onto, no, onto these people uh, particularly if we're, if we're going to pay them such huge amounts of money mm-hmm. and treat them like gods
0: yeah and that's why the fall of gigs was the big news that it was because yeah. they thought people thought he was one of these people that lives up to all of those yeah. expectations he was the except,
1: supposedly, supposedly the exception that proved the rule Yeah, uh, the last gentleman of the game whiter than white all that sort of thing and so that made the scandal a lot more dramatic. But what's interesting this very week that we are uh, that we're doing this interview, is that in a season where it looked like City were going to run away with the league, United weren't going to do anything, Giggs was kind of marginalised in the middle yeah. of the season, wasn't really playing so well. And each time that happens, you think, well, maybe he's done for, <laughs> uh, maybe that's the end, and maybe it won't be a particularly positive end, particularly yeah. in the light of the scandal. You know, you could be at that level of success for twenty years and then fall away and have this great falling from grace and um and that would be that would be really bad mm. um he gave a, a an interview for the tv a, a couple of days ago uh, in advance of the QPR game and it was interesting to be able to see that that reverence had kind of come back again it's been 6 months or a year or something like that somewhere between and he's been kind of forgiven yeah you know and uh, at least by the sporting world he 's yes. been forgiven i 'm not speaking for how his wife feels no. <laughs> or how his brother <laughs> how his brother feels but um, it 's interesting to me to see that move again, yeah you know and the, that, that reverence is coming back, and if United do win the league again, then that 'll be his you know his fifty billionth title or something like mm-hmm. that, and people will once again marvel in the way that i 've portrayed in the book, marvel at that superhuman quality that they want if to look up to the flames that he always yeah. you know because yeah. the, the
0: book ends on a high for gigs and then you know it seems to be going on and, as you see, looking at the real life of gigs and not being Nostradamus but there just seemed to be something about certain people that you can almost say it's going to end okay we think you just never know if Paul Scholes proves to have uh, been at it then I'll just give up I (laughs) mean, surely not yeah Yeah. well some of the advice I got when uh,
1: (laughs) when the gig scandal broke was a couple of people said to me is it too late to change it to bring me the head of Paul Sculls (laughs) (laughs) somehow I don't think that would have raised the same interest you know even I mean even Paul Sculls isn't interested in Paul (laughs) Exactly. Uh, you can tell that from his autobiography but it the uh, it, it is a strange one if if Paul Sculls has been Sleeping around, then really, you know, yeah. there's there's no hope for any of us. But the the part of the reason that he had to be gigs anyway was that he has one more and been yeah. around for longer. He was around before two years before skulls, yeah, three years before skulls. Yeah. It couldn't be and, Lee
0: Sharp because he disappeared without a trace. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, as Mikey in the book says, you know, Lee Sharp was one of these that that you know he was trousers first, football second, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> and. That that is a line that wasn't meant to be ironic, but it's become ironic because, of course, you read it within the context of a book about gigs, yeah. and you go, "Ah, well, isn't it's somebody else that that same way."
0: Do you think the 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 reason that people uh, do use the the language of football to kind of communicate emotion, or at least try and talk to someone, it's not because they project a morality on it, but because, as you say, they understand the language of it, and it's one of the few times that they allow their emotions to kind of get. Uh, to let go, so they're, they're always thinking. Well, I'm, I'm allowed to be emotion, emotional in this context. That's okay. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, at the moment, people can say, um, "Oh, how do you feel about how Douglas is doing at Liverpool?" And grown men will weep, and uh, yeah. on, on the verge of it myself at times. Um, as you say, they didn't, people aren't educated. Some people aren't educated enough to have the the, the language. Going back to Dougie's war of, of explaining what's going on in their head. And sport's one of these, and I think music's another one, where it, there's a language that they can use in some way. If you can read the yeah. signs, if you're yeah. quick enough it's to It's the signs. It's code, yeah, but, yeah. It's a, uh,
1: but it's a real thing. And although much of it might be in cliches, there's meaning in there. Mm-hmm. And Most I think of it's cliches I, when
0: it comes to football. Yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> um, but I think, it's a, I think it's a valid language, and I'm not interested in... Um, the types of critics who will say that we shouldn't be writing about this stuff, and this is exactly what we're supposed to be writing about. Yeah, and um, it's quite an, it's it's uh, it's quite a strange thing to do to write novels in a world of you know video games and the internet and mm-hmm. um, things that move a lot faster and click um, for our
0: Sky News yeah, reportage, yeah. And all
1: that. Uh, which is another thing that the book tries to look at. But if you're going to if you're going to write fiction in that context, you've got to do it in a way that um, somehow reflects the society that you're in. I think.
0: Right, I think enough of uh, chatting books, I'm going to put these five questions to you that uh, we, we didn't have managed to do last time, so I hope you're ready for this, I haven't told you about these. Thought, okay. They're all not right. intrusive at all. No, we just, we've done this with most of the people we've interviewed, and I think it might be only right, even though I've maybe heard the answers from you in a different time. Um, what, if you can say, is your favourite book?
1: 1984 by George Orwell. Ah, oh, good answer. good oh.
0: answer. He's, it sounds as though he's prepared these. No, I, um, I was,
1: it was given to me by a teacher when I was 13 years old who okay. could tell that I was interested in books but that I didn't have any patience for school. Uh-huh. And he went, there you oh, are, that'll blow your head off. Fantastic. Yeah. Scare the living daylights. Like <laughs> well, brilliant, though. No. Brilliant.
0: Yeah. Um, well, to follow on from that, your favourite writer or writers? I mean, you're allowed to pick one of them. Um, uh,
1: at the moment, Peace and Palahniuk. Yeah. Uh, Palahniuk's a little bit more unreliable. Um, but... Uh, yeah I'll, yeah, I'll go for those two. And, and Foster Wallace. Oh, yeah, for um, me to
0: to I haven't read any different. Because uh, I've been stuck well, in Foster Wallace. Well, what are, you doing and inter- and... what are you doing interviewing me? You've got to just <laughs> turn, turn everything off. Go and get yourself. Go and get some Foster the, Vol- the,
1: the, the first one I recommend is, is a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Yeah. So the very short, very, very short one paragraph story at the beginning, which is called something like the, you know, a, a summary of the whole of industrialised history. Yeah. It's just one paragraph. Oh. I think
0: it's that's just kind of raving about him as well and then since then I just see his name everywhere and I think because yeah. I say I've had yeah. my head stuck in scotch books or yeah. so I have to Brief have to interviews find.
1: with Hideous Man is brilliant as well exactly. but there's an interesting piece in the, in the Edinburgh Review um, last issue or the, the issue before about where it stood morally on this novel that was published after he died because mm. they were saying that actually the editor had had such a big part in it that maybe it wasn't really his book at all there's some really really interesting issues about that final book but I wouldn't go there first I'd go to, okay. the, short, you know, go to the short stories sure. I will, I'm yeah. going to do that yeah, yeah so Foster Wallace Foster Wallace
0: um, just think when you, The Damned United was made into um, film obviously has there been any interest in gigs has anyone approached you to say this could make
1: yeah, we had a, we've got a couple of people reading at the moment. I think it's going to take a little while if anybody's interested in it at all. we mm-hmm. have to see whether it's going to be successful.
0: Yeah, of course. You know, but yes. But it's like so you know it strikes me that it could of,
1: be a really interesting film. It's um, it's by far the most cinematic thing yeah. that I've done oh, yeah. and I don't think there would be any problem doing it that way. I'd like to see it, but, you know, I would also like to see my mum in a nice big house and uh, I'd also like to have um, an endless supply of Haribo.
0: Oh, that's favourite dream has now been <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have in the surprise, horrible. Well, wow. yeah. uh, favourite band slash music. Um, uh,
1: oh, there's a there's a billion million things, but yeah, a couple of bands that I love that I don't know anybody else that loves them, so okay. I'll give them a mention. Excellent. Um, the Constantines from Canada, right? Toronto band, absolutely fantastic. I've written a story for my next book. Uh, which is a collection of short stories based on one of their songs, which is called I Will Not Sing a Hateful Song. Okay. And the, the, the refrain is. is I will not sing a hateful song, though it's in me to sing. Oh, beautiful. So, and they're really raucous. The guy's got a very broken voice. And by the time they got to the fourth album, there are lots of songs about having no money and having a, <laughs> like, well, The first song's called Hard Feelings. And there's this brilliant lyrics go, Some people's love isn't strong enough. Oh, it was really they're a great great rock band but I don't know I've never seen them live I don't know what they look like I don't know what their names are but I've got all four records and the other band is the Walkman oh yes they're they're kind of hot and cold sometimes that band but again uh, left field and weird and and raucous but kind of broken in a way Um, and quite simplistic music they don't have loads and loads of riffs and extra lines going around they have lots of these crazy rules in the band and the, the, the music has to be very very simple yeah and uh, and the guy's got a very special voice, and their last record um, has got some just some like absolute favourite songs on it. Yeah, there's, there's another.
0: It's another name which keeps coming up. I've I, I heard maybe a couple of tracks, but
1: that's about it. Yeah. Well, I, those are my for anybody listening uh, that's not heard of them, please. Uh, you know, I could sit here going springsteen yeah, no. well I love Springsteen, of course, but everybody's heard of him so i'm, I'm not I'm not teaching any any anybody anything new, although the new springsteen album is also great
0: It is indeed um favorite film
1: um there will be blood ah yes, although my experience of seeing it at the cinema in the what's the west End cinema in the, the Gro- uh, Grosvenor yeah the Grosvenor um went to see it late on a Friday night and uh they had a club going on upstairs and ah. for anybody that doesn't know this film the first 15 minutes there's no speaking that's right you know they've just got it's, and it's the most incredibly powerful thing it is yeah but um uh, you could hear this thing going from upstairs it's a, a few years ago so it was that tune that went we are your friends never be alone again oh come on and it was just it was hilarious absolutely hilarious totally killed the atmosphere in the in the cinema but Despite that noise coming Despite from upstairs, that, I could still see how special it was. I love, um, I love Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, so I mean, I think done, I think he's, an incredible. He, actor. he hasn't done a bad line yeah. um, in his entire career. No, I was so, watching
0: yeah. uh, Last of the Mohicans the other night, and he's, he's, you know, it's a big action role, really, but yeah. just phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely. never
1: done it, never put a foot wrong. One of very, very few top, top, top actors that hardly ever goes wrong.
0: And the final one is the event that kind of changed, you've already said about getting a copy of 1984. So it's the event or thing that kind of changed your life that you thought, I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to become a writer. I'm going to do something different.
1: Uh, meeting Robert Allen Jameson as an undergraduate at Strathclyde uh-huh. University in 2001. And um, he was the writer in residence there at the time and they had no creative writing course before I was teaching there. Yes. Um, and, uh, and I didn't even know you could do a dissertation creative writing at all I've been taking the odd story he encouraged me to go to a couple of groups and uh, and just really simple things just said you yeah. know that's not terrible you should keep going that bit's good you want to work on that have you thought that through and I had no experience of that at mm-hmm. the time and he said oh, I was really struggling with my dissertation at the time uh, I was doing something on the lyrics of uh, the Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preacher <laughs> specialising in the songs Yes mm-hmm. about prostitution and uh, if white America told the truth for a single day, its world would fall apart, of course, and four stone seven pounds, but yeah. anorexia, it was all light stuff, but I was doing it basically because i didn 't know what else to do, yeah. and I had no uh maturity or patience at the time and didn 't want to do books and um and he said you, you know you can do a creative writing dissertation to which i said that 's not proper work <laughs> uh, and now i'm <laughs> and a, and now i 'm a creative asking? writing lecturer <laughs> <laughs> um so that was the main, that was the event really i mean I, in many ways it, meeting Alistair would seem like a much bigger thing mm. and in many ways it was but I wouldn't have even got yeah, there yeah, yeah, if somebody correct. hadn't shown me that writing is something you can do with your life sure. now yeah.
0: yeah and a very underrated uh, writer on his own
1: absolutely his uh, his last book The Happy Land is fantastic yeah I agree um, and, uh, and his book A Day at the Office as well uh, which is completely ignored when, you, yeah. when people talk about what happened in the, in the 1990s, the way that he melds poetry and prose there, and the kind of topics that he deals with. Are, are, I, I think he's been completely written out at that yeah, time. Yeah, it
0: was because it didn't fit in with what people yeah, yeah, wanted so what, many Which is how around.
1: I get into fights with the likes of Alan Bissett about neat narratives, yeah. neat literary narratives, neat music narratives. Uh, <laughs> the thing about Britpop was no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. You've totally forgotten said. I so, think
0: that sounds like a future podcast. Get you and Alan in to talk. Versus. Yeah, Versus. Yeah, get, versus. Yeah, yeah.
1: get so, me in <laughs> to do a versus, uh, versus with him and I'll wipe the floor with him. Oh. I'll wipe the floor with him.
0: The gauntlet is thrown yeah. down. Mr. <laughs> Bissett, if you're listening, it's on. Uh, listen, Nods, thanks for doing that once again. Um, it's a pleasure.
1: I'll be back next week. We'll do it again if this didn't work.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back next time with uh, something completely different, I'm sure.
1: Hello Glasgow, hey, I was going to do hello Manchester, I've been thinking about it all day, I wasn't sure how it would go down, I'm going to try it, hello Manchester, hey. uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a better idea to stick with Glasgow, uh, hi everybody, this is better than Waterstones eh? Yes. Yeah, I really wanted to have a, um, an informal fun party because um, everything that I have over the last 15 years is because of Glasgow. And I want to thank you all for being here. I have to do some reading, so I can't cry at the beginning, so I'm just going to leave it at that for now. (laughs) But I'm just going to look at the ceiling because I know too many faces. Um, The way we're going to do this is I'm going to give you a few short snippets in the book, try and give you a sense of the spirit and the flavor of it, but not explain too much about it. Um, I'm going to have a little bit of help at the beginning. And we'll have a few questions in between, and then get back to the music. Uh, There is a complete Oasis band from now on, uh, on the Manchester music. Um, Andy's played the one good song they wrote before they got rich. Hi Neil. Make yourself comfortable. <laughs> uh, it's Neil that suggested yesterday that we have half time oranges, so that's why you're going to get oranges at half time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you you that's in only a few minutes. See you here in, in time. Okay, uh, so this is a, the story of Mikey Wilson, who is the least successful player ever for Man United. He's obsessed with the most. And um, uh, it's just a coincidence he's called Wilson, but I am going to use a Wilson to help me out in this first section. Are you ready or have you got a, You're happy. Okay, it's just you seem so far away from me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Alan Wilson's going to help me out with the first section. <laughs> Summer 1991, July the 17th, the beginning. The great man was well early. So when the bell went, I wasn't ready, and I swear to God, I went fucking mental... I started legging it around the house, not knowing where to go. I could have run right up the wall, onto the ceiling and back down again. I had that much energy. I could have taken a bite out the couch. I jumped over one of the chairs and jumped right back. I ran round it, then round it the other way. Mum battered me with a tea towel and said, Stop it! Do you want me to think you're a hamster? But she was bouncing too. She kept staring out the window at his murk. We were thinking that if he left it there too long, it'd probably get nicked. Then mum screamed, well get the door then, what are you waiting for? So I opened it, smiled and said, hello Mr Ferguson, come on in. As this this was a thing I said every day. His first words to me were, son, if you can get up the wing, as fast as you get round your front room you'll do just fine. There's no question about that, no question about all." Oh. oh hello, said mum, showing him into the lounge where she'd laid out a plate of biscuits. Then she asked, how do you like your tea? like he was a lord or something. And she was his maid at his service. While he picked up and crunched a digestive, I just stood there thinking. Thinking that he looked pretty small compared to what I expected. And then thinking that he had this funny little red nose. How it didn't look like red on the telly interviews after the games. And then thinking how Alex Ferguson is sitting on my mum's couch about to drink her tea. As I stood there staring, staring, Staring at that nose, the manager of Manchester United chatted away about the weather, smiling and nodding whenever mum spoke. Then he said, You must be very proud of your boy, Mrs Wilson. And she laughed that bit too hard, snorting like she'd heard a filthy joke and forgot to pretend she didn't think it was funny. The whole thing was over quick. It must have only lasted 20 minutes and Ferguson passed his drink. I gave him the United mug, the one that said European Cup Winners Cup Winners 1991 on it. He smiled when he saw that. I reckon he'd be round ours for half the day, maybe stay for tea, watch a film with us or something. Thought we might come down the park for a bit of a kickabout and a swig from a bottle of cider. And when I got the call he was coming over, I'd imagined us sitting up all night talking by torchlight under the duvet about the great United teams of the past, eating sarnies and talking about our favourite players, thinking up best ever United 11s together to how together. we were going to, as he put it years later, knock Liverpool off their fucking perch. <laughs> but there was none of that. He just told Mum
0: I had a... Very promising career in the making, Mrs Wilson, if he works hard. And I'll make sure he does. Don't you worry about that.
1: Well, Mum couldn't stop herself. Could you make him tidy his room as well, Mr Ferguson? That'd be smashing. The great man didn't laugh. He just turned to me, face straight like he was saying to and told me. Son, be good to your mother. She brought you into the world and she can take you back out just as easy. Was that a joke? Was he joking? Did Alexander Ferguson make jokes? Bad jokes. (laughs) Then he thanked Mum for the tea, got up and smiled. At the door he said, I don't usually do home visits, son. I've only done it once before. He rubbed his thumb and forefinger together, looked out the window, perhaps checking his car was still there. Then he said, Have you seen Ryan Giggs play, Mike? I was too numb to answer with words, so I just nodded once, all tight. Aye, some talent that boy, said Alex Ferguson. Some talent. You could do worse than learn from him. Be at the cliff for nine on Monday, and we'll see what we can do about making a player out of you. Then he touched me softly on the shoulder and left. Didn't ask if I had an agent, never even mentioned city or asked me <laughs> off. It. Didn't matter, did it? After he went, I danced in the kitchen. No music. No need. Just danced and danced like a spastic. Arms and legs everywhere till I'd forgotten why I started. Then I fell onto the couch. He had sat on with his arse. The same one he sat in the dugout with. And grinned so hard my cheek muscles ached. But mum grabbed those cheeks, twisted the flesh with her fingers and said, Don't you dare fuck this up. Michael Jonathan Wilson. Promise me. Okay? Real fucking hair dryer treatment. Pointing at me and shaking. Like I'd already done something wrong. Mum... Never usually let rip and never talked about football. Usually it was all, listen to your teachers and revise for your exams and you'll never get anywhere in life if you don't do your geography homework. Then there she was, almost crying, begging me to be a footballer. So I told her what she wanted to hear. I'll be the best ever, I said. I gave her a kiss on the forehead and told her, don't you worry about nothing anymore, mum. You're going to live like the queen from now on. The main thing was to get her to let me leave school before exams I was going to fail anyway But when I said that Don't you worry about nothing mum I'm going to look after you I really meant it you know. It was already eat your dinner off it clean But she redid the kitchen again anyway Then she started dusting in the lounge Then the hoover come out I just sat for a bit back on my back staring at the TV This zoned out half grin on my face Like I was hypnotised I wasn't even watching what was on I didn't even know what was on I just knew that somewhere in the corner of my vision there were colours moving, people moving in the screen. The hum of the hoover stopped. Mum pointed towards the box and said, So you'll be on there soon, eh? I smiled. Yeah, yeah, suppose. Then I said, I wish Dad was here. You he would have in knocking out. Fergie, in our house like that. It's mad. Mum gave me another clap across the head for swearing, but it was a soft one this time. Then she unplugged the hoover, sat down next to me and said, with a relaxed smile, It's okay, Mikey. It's best your father wasn't at home. We can tell him all about it later. Okay, so that's the beginning of the book. Alan Wilson, ladies and gentlemen. Alex Ferguson. and uh, Amazing. Only one day's rehearsal. Um, There's no way... I've spent 15 years, 15 very happy years in Glasgow, and this is my home. But if you think I'm trying a Glaswegian accent in Glasgow, (laughs) no chance, I'm not that stupid. I'm no conspiracy theorist, but like I say, don't get me started. It's all a way to keep the ordinary working man down. Ordinary working men like my granddad who worked hard his whole life but died as poor as the day he was born. Men like my, my meanwhile, the rich and the lucky get richer and luckier by the second, the millisecond. And to grow these riches, they don't even have to do anything anymore. They get richer while they sleep, wake up and get richer while they shower, shave, take a shit, eat muesli, all that money just growing and growing and expanding forever because it has to, or else they might stop getting richer and start getting poorer, and we couldn't have that now, could we? These little grey shits who run the clubs and the channels and the papers creaming off the good stuff and keeping us constantly frothing at the mouth about the next event with people kicking a ball or hitting one across a net or putting one into a hole. They don't know what it's like to really love what you do and to want to do nothing else. To stop the world for a while, press pause on everything outside those white lines and just be a player in a team. Just be. To them it's just a series of banners for pies. And that's why this country is dying. Maybe it's dead already. But I really wouldn't mind all this. I wouldn't, but it's the lies that get me. And especially the lies they tell you in the after-game interviews, which are zoomed instantly around the globe, where interviewer one from TV Station X says, well done, insert player name, you must be pleased with that result. Then player two from Team Y says, thanks, insert interviewer name, yeah, I am. At the end of the day, it's a game or two halves, and fair play to, insert opposition team name, but even though we had our backs to the wall, they had all the possession, all the chances, hit wise twice, was twice-bar three times in the last ten minutes. I think when he sees the game tonight on TV, insert opposition manager name, we'll agree we deserve to win the match. <laughs> then interviewer one from TV station X says, and it must be great to get on the score sheet. You've got a good touch for our big man. <laughs> then player two from team Y says, Well, that's a bit of a stupid question, Mr. Interviewer. It's not even really a question at all, is it? But I'm contractually obliged to talk to you for the next minute and a half. So, yeah, obviously, it's always good to score. I thank God for that. A Catholic slash Protestant slash Islamic slash Jewish slash Sikh slash Buddhist slash Mickey Mouse God above all others who is most certainly on the side of me and my team in all our endeavours and very much against the players on the other team, even if they believe in the same God as I do. But the most important thing is that we got the three points in the bag. That's where points belong. In bags. I do want people, of course. course. If I don't score, I go home, I sulk, drink myself stupid, shout at my children and beat my wife. But I can't say that without incurring a major fine or possibly a criminal prosecution. And anyway, that's not the party line. So I have to tell you that I don't really think about records or personal fame and glory. And that when I rose like a salmon and put the ball in the back of the net today, I was only thinking of the lads laughing, joking, crazy, mucking about in the showers, lads. It was all about, that. and full credit to them for getting the result we need. You know, Tim, the, tri- the title race is a marathon, not a sprint, so we're just keeping our eyes on the prize, taking one game at a time, not getting ahead of ourselves. As for me, I just do as I'm told, and like the gaffer says, keep it tight at the back and loose up front. Don't think too much, don't ask questions, and don't answer too many from people like you. Anyway, it's not really about me, is it? About the backroom staff, the tea lady, the cleaning lady, the supporters, the kids all over the world who follow this club, who understand the meaning of the word passion, who you know what this club stands for and demand the football day for Christmas, Christmas. Christmas and new kits every season. In home colours, away colours, and random third combination colours we don't actually need. And give us money, 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 which I like to spend on convertible sports cars. And swimming pools and tattoos which say thug for life on them. And mansions in the country and jewellery for my wife or girlfriend, who's an aspiring actress slash model who says she loves me for the man inside, even though she's an 8 out of 10 and I'm clearly no more than a 4. And she won't have sex with me anymore unless she's completely wasted. And I remind her that if it wasn't for me, she still be to us in a cocktail... Sorry, mate. What was the question again? (laughs) Um, uh, This is uh, is a section from 1999 where um, it's in a pub in Manchester and the greatest goal ever has just been scored by Ryan Giggs in the semi-final of the FA Cup against Arsenal and I don't know if anybody knows this but he kind of runs around the pitch afterwards and takes his top off to reveal the hairiest chest on planet earth (laughs) and kind of swings the... Okay, all right. So this is that bit and Mikey's in the pub with his brother Guy and and Guy admits that the goal is great but he's not really a huge fan and... um, and he's trying to make sense of, of what's happened. And this whole section is, um, is predicated on the ridiculous idea that any woman anywhere would be attracted to any man anywhere. Guy's the proper philosopher these days, no doubt. And once he gets going, he starts up with the theories. Leaning in towards you, sneaking the odd slide, look at the barmaid's tits as she glides by, picking up your glasses, he says, success on the pitch. True, pure moments of fairy tale that will go down in United history become folklore. They're not really about talent at all. They're about maths. Know what I'm saying? You give him the face, but you're smiling, and he carries on. By the law of averages, he says, if you play enough games and you get enough chances in those games, you're bound to score a goal like that in the end. Something special, something memorable, where the timing and the occasion and the weather are all aligned like stars. You give him the face again. Is he an idiot? Is he fucking with you? He says, and Giggsy's played more matches than most, hasn't he? So if you think about it, I mean really think about it, that means the goal against Arsenal wasn't special at all. It was always going to happen. You just didn't know when. All Ryan had to do was keep going, not give up, you see. Sometimes when guy's like this, you wish he'd stop trying to make you feel better. A bit later, guy gets talking to a woman you might know. You think about it, maybe she used to hang around in the park when you were younger. There were kids who never seemed to leave the place. They just stayed all night, drinking, screwing and dealing. And you look back and look and you're sure that's where you know her from. But there's no name there on your tongue. She's small and soft and she's laughing. She's wearing jeans and a simple white t-shirt like... She's not trying to prove anything to anyone. And Guy's still talking to her, and after a while he turns to you and whispers, I'm going to behave, Mikey, got to be good these days, but you should talk to her. You ask, why? Guy shakes his head and laughs. I don't know what's wrong with you, he says. If you want to earn the lottery, you've got to get yourself a fucking scratch card once in a while. And you don't know what the hell that means, but when he pushes you over to this woman and explains she's called Gemma Black, you speak. Hi, Gemma Black, you say, I'm Mikey, can I get you a drink? And she considers the offer, then after an age, she accepts with a stiff little nod and then a, well, what the hell else am I doing? Later, you buy her another. Guy presses a few crumpled notes into your palm on his way to the toilet and whispers in his best New Jersey Mafia Don accent, forget about it. So you do. Then you get another one for yourself too. Might as well. By quarter past 11, the pub has started to empty out, people moving on home or to queues for clubs nearby, and you three are pretty much the last to leave. You don't know why. Maybe because you get the impression she's not into the footy, but you decide to try and go until the end of the night without mentioning United to Gemma, or that you played for them, or what happened. She talked fast, but she talked straight, and she says she doesn't want to think about the past. So maybe you shouldn't either. All that shit, you think, that follows you around, maybe it doesn't need to. Maybe it isn't a shadow at all. And if you tell it to leave you alone, it might. When Guy gets his jacket, he gives you a big bear hug and says, he shoots, he scores. Then he lopes off out the door, the dog and partridge, backs to his dependable Clayton Blackmore <laughs> girlfriend and solid Paul Scholes home and steady Franny Burns job. You live alone, Dad's bound to phone late with something to say about the match and you're not in the mood for his, I could have been a pro, you know, Marky. And Mikey, do you think your mother misses me? And you know, me and this barmaid, I don't think it's going to work out after all. So you decide to stay for one more. Gemma came to the pub with friends but leaves with you. Not because you're a footballer, not because you told her you have gigsie on speed dial or you've won a pile of medals. You have a laugh together like mates. When she laughs, she has this twang like she's from somewhere else. She's pretty sharp too, you reckon, full of fight. She has an opinion on everything. And she must have a good opinion of you or else she wouldn't still be here, right? You head on to a club for one more, stand by the bar shouting over the music. And after a while there, she's beginning to enjoy herself. You talk and talk about Manchester. Gemma says she's moved here. she moved here when she was about 12, but it always felt like home. That to her, the city sounded like home. And the two of you agree on everything that matters. New order. From Salford, early stuff good, later stuff bad. The Mondays, from Little Holton slash Salford. Hits very good, everything else very bad. The Roses, from Altrincham. First album, the best ever. Second one, the worst. Oasis, from Burnage. Don't count, city supporters. The Four, (laughs) hundreds of members since being formed in in Presswich in 1976. Shit, 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 shit. The Smiths, Morrissey from Hume, Manchester, Ma from Ardwick, Manchester. The other two, doesn't matter. Brilliant, obviously, even though Moz is a puff. Then you get sidetracked into talking about whether Morrissey is actually gay, or just nothing. Is that even possible? And finally, Joy Division, senior order. Her favourites, your favourites, the best. Gemma says, you'll think I'm daft, but to me, Joy Division sound like old Manchester. The one I miss, you know? And this is the kind of sentimental, rose-tinted crap you love. So you sing, love will tear us apart for her, out of tune, loud as you can, in tribute. And at the end of all this, she's still there, not rolling her eyes or heading for the door, which makes you more relaxed, which means she likes you more. When, the, when you start the song a second time, this time you do it with a full Ian Curtis impression, shaking all over the place. Then you do it à la Moz, early period, waving imaginary gladioli. Then you morph into Ian Brown, the swaggering walk on the spot, (laughs) all the attitude, the works. Fucking nice one, mate, you say. Fucking nice one. Gemma laughs and says, you're an absolute idiot. She smiles widely. A cute idiot, she says, playing with her earring and with her left hand. And you've never been called cute before. After another couple of drinks, Gemma's mood turns. She says she gets lonely sometimes, especially since her ex-boyfriend scarped back to Merseyside, where her family live. You pretend you didn't hear that. <laughs> you have to. This is her first night out and feeling good in months. And really, she's not ready for anything new. She just wants someone to talk to. And when Gemma starts crying right there in the club, you don't act like a dick and tell her to dry her eyes. You feel like a new, clean man tonight. So you put an arm around her and just say, you understand which you really, truly, no shit feel like you do. And she puts an arm round you as well, her other arm linking through yours like she's hanging on to you. The alcohol on her breath smells like your own. The stale, sticky insides of your mouth, and you tell her you shouldn't be alone tonight, and neither should she. That she can trust you. And she doesn't laugh, or tell you to shut the fuck up, or say, is that the best you can do, Casanova? You really love her for that. And for a second you think about telling her. What are you so happy about, sunshine? Asked Gemma as you try to find the keys to your flat an hour later. Well, you say, fishing around in your pockets. I just met this girl, didn't I? This woman and, and, and me and Ryan. We're going to be just the same now. Just the same. Gemma smells good. She feels warm. She says, you're not tough at all, are you, Mikey. And when you lean in and hold each other on the doorstep, it's good not to be alone. That's the main thing you remember afterwards, that it's good to be close to another human body. When you get inside, you even forget about United for a while and your terrible mistake. And though you can't explain it at the time, that feels so good, it's almost too good. You can hardly bear it. It's totally exhausting. But so is thinking about the same problem all the time and not being able to make it better. When Gemma kisses you, you close your eyes, kiss back hope the feeling will last. For a while on this night, you've never failed. You're just an ordinary bloke who's got lucky at his local pub and can't believe it. That happens to everyone eventually, right? If you live long enough. It's the law of averages, right? If you fail and fail and keep living, If you drink every night and talk to enough strangers, even the ugly guys get lucky in the end. Even the ones with no chat, who have this strange spirit about them that nearly everyone stays well clear of. They get drawn to women like them. They're magneted together. Sadness drawn to sadness. Anger drawn to Agna. Agner? That's a character I cut out. Anger drawn to anger. This magical night, the two of you sit up late and Gemma smokes, the two of you sitting with legs dangling out of your window, looking out in the city, talking about her life. All the things that have gone wrong and how she's going to put them right. She wants to get out of her crappy job at the call centre for starters and into a better one. You tell her you want to help her do that and you mean it. You promise to change too. You know what that means, she can't know. It's cold but you keep yourselves warm for a while by hugging in the dark. When the rain starts you go inside. Gemma leans in, pulls at your belt and says, Come on, help me forget. Okay, um, I'm just going to do one more bit, which gives you a sense of uh, of the climax of the book, which I hopefully, without hopefully giving away too much, um, Luke's going for piss. <laughs> I can say what I like. In about five seconds, I can say what I like. Tingle Street Press have been an absolute Actually, it has been great. Um, that's because we gave him three pints before we started. Okay, so I'm just going to do another small section of the book. Um, I thought about saying a whole bunch of overly emotional, sentimental things, but I'll probably say it to individual people. I hugely appreciate every single one of you being here, and thank you, Glasgow. For everything. <laughs> okay, so um, my key has gone to Moscow for the United-Chelsea final in 2008. And he thinks he has a ticket that's valid. No. (laughs) He spent a lot of money on a ticket that's not valid. And, um... And so he finds his way to a bar in Moscow where a whole bunch of other people who thought they had a valid ticket but don't have ended up. And, um... He's with a a bunch of guys called the Dublin Reds. And... um, and this is and this is what happens. Neither team is breaking through or looking like it, so it's going to be extra time. And here comes Ryan, just before the whistle, saddling up and getting ready to ride. Guy texts you again saying, don't be a dumb fuck all your life. And those words take you right back to when the two of you shared a room. Then, the end of the 90, murmurs, talk, the rush to the bar. I nodded when asked if I wanted another. In extra time, both teams had chances. Chelsea hit the underside of the crossbar. United legend Ryan Giggs had a shot saved off the line by Chelsea captain's head, at which Mike Wilson clutched his own and called out, Destiny! But now the clock was running down in a way that seemed to Mike and probably to Guy and Sally and Robbie and the Dublin Rads and Danny Treadwell, the guy whose career he ruined, and the Oldham defender, and Debbie and Derek, to Gregory and all his friends at the bar and to both team managers and to all their staff, to be inevitable. Nobody wants penalties. You know as well as I do, Sir Guy. It's a lottery. But until they come up with a better system. United win the toss and go first. So Carlos Tevez, whose name will be forgotten, approaches the penalty spot, positions the ball, runs up, and scores. Cech dives the wrong way, it's 1-0, and Tevez clenches his fist as the bar goes mental. Then hush-hush, quiet, nervous, waiting for the first Chelsea penalty, which is taken by Michael Balak, whose name will be forgotten. And he scores. Shot, struck hard and confident, and it's 1-1 as there are mumbles in this Moscow bar and thousands of others around the globe. The odd, we're going to fucking lose here, can be heard before the big cheers swallow nervousness. As Michael Carrick, whose name will be forgotten, steps up and Carrick scores. It's 2-1, and no doubt about that one, says the guy behind you, and the bar goes mental again, then hush-hush, quiet, quiet, nervous, as Juliano Belletti, whose name will be forgotten, walks up and you try and will him to blast it high and wide, but he... Scores with his first kick of the game, though you wouldn't know it as the screen graphic flashes 2-2 and there are more mumbles in this bar, but probably massive cheers in countless other places all over the planet from Chelsea supporters, some just Chelsea supporters from the night, from Liverpool and Barcelona and Edinburgh, some wearing t-shirts saying anyone but United. All this as you wonder if Ryan's going to take one and then big whoops all round is the big flavour of the year in tonight's goal scorer, Cristiano Ronaldo, whose name despite everything will be forgotten, steps up and does that cheeky fake stutter he does and misses. Oh my god, fuck 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 fuck. It's still two two and there's an earthquake in your mind and it's obvious you're gonna lose now even though no one says it as before you know it, Frank Lampard whose name will be forgotten, thank God is there and ready Handy scores it's 3-2 Chelsea and a few people are already halfway to the exit as the guy behind you says I wish you'd fucking do that for England and a ripple of nervous laughter goes around the bar as time speeds up and Owen Hargreaves, whose name will be forgotten is next and Balls of Steel Hargreaves scores it's 3-3 and next is Ashley Cole whose name will be forgotten and he scores too and all of a sudden it's nearly over and Christ, fuck bollocks, it's down to Lewis Nanny, whose name will be forgotten, who gets a big groan as he walks up. You hope he can't hear that from where he is. But it's okay for now, because Nanny scores. Only just mind, it's 4-4 and the bar braces itself for hell and a long night and a shitty trip home and months of paying back money spent on this shameful failure when Mr. Bastard Chelsky himself, John Terry, whose name will be forgotten, places the ball. The Russian boys in the box are giving it the big intro, which probably translates as, one kick to the king of the world, Mr. Abramovich, or some shit. But even they couldn't have predicted this, because even though United keeper Vandersaar, whose name will be forgotten, has gone the wrong way, Terry slips and all of a sudden is on the floor and he hits the post and misses. Ha ha, ha 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 ha! And already the bar is celebrating, ha 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 ha, like United have won, and Terry is crouched on the floor wanting to die. Ha 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 ha! Because that kind of thing, it can only mean fate has already made her decision. But then, as one, the bar remembers that actually this isn't over yet, and bloody hell, we're into sudden death and panic, panic, panic starts spreading as Anderson, whose name you can hardly even remember walks up to take his penalty looking like this tiny little Brazilian boy who needs a cuddle and can't possibly be big enough for this situation and you think, it's mental, isn't it? What minute details, success and failure come down to in the end and Anderson scores lucky that almost hit the keeper and bounced off but seemed to go through him Instead, but it's five four, that's all that matters, and there are sighs of relief which lasts for just long enough for another baby boy, Solomon Kalu, whose name will be forgotten, to do that long, lonely walk from the halfway line, place the ball and Score, which means it's now 5-5 and feels like this has been going on forever and you can't remember anything before it or imagine any life after it. But then planet Earth stops spinning as, yes ladies and gents, Ryan Joseph Giggs, whose name will be remembered forevermore, steps forward. How could you not see this coming? And he's walking, floating, flying to his destiny, blocking out everything around him and this is the calmest moment of your life because you know that your soul and his are one that everything's been leading to this. Everything. And every second and millisecond of the last 20 years melts into the ground before you as the roar goes up in the stadium and in the bar and when he takes his run up and of course he scores, bending it into the corner of the net. It's 6-5 and if dreams were wishes and wishes came true, then you'd be sitting on a cloud. So Matt Busby lighting a fresh cigar for you. Because all right, none of these guys know it, but it's the winning penalty. And even though it's an now to face the future and there are cries of oh shit, from all around, and is this gonna go on all night? And my nan's up to take the next one. You've seen that this right here is the end. So when Anelka, whose name will be forgotten, misses, van der Sar saves, and United are the champions of Europe, and the place goes fucking mental. You're not even looking. You're on the way to the bar. Might as well beat the rush, eh? Thank you very much. Everybody.